friends. Um, I want to, before we get into the Word, I want to sincerely, with all of my heart, thank the worship team. I'm sure you guys are going to be thanking them later, but thank you so much. Um, I, I don't get to really worship the Lord in song on Sundays. We're, we're a relatively new church plant, and, and I can blame it on that. I can also blame it on the fact that I'm a control freak. And, um, you know, as this, I'll, I'll give you a little portal into my brain as the time of worshiping the Lord in song is going on on Sundays. I'm thinking, oh, there's this guy that I've been evangelizing with for two weeks, and two weeks in a row he told me that this is going to be the Sunday that he comes. And, it's, and the service started ten minutes ago, and, and he's not here again. And, and I've been counseling with this couple, and, and, and their marriage is really on the rocks, and he showed up to church alone without her. Where, where's she at? And, and did I change the batteries in my microphone? Because last week they were cutting out during the sermon, and, and I can't believe the speaker keeps popping. We just spent a thousand bucks to get that thing fixed, and, and I mean, that's just, I don't have to do that here. That's your job, so um, it's been so nice to just sing to Jesus, and, and, and this morning, on a Sunday morning, I got to just sing to Jesus for the first time where uh, all that stuff that has to be taken care of I can just go grab Jeremy or Che and say, like, hey, I noticed this. Go do that. And, and that's so cool because I'm always the guy that somebody says, hey, I noticed this. Will you go do that? So thank you so much, worship team. I, my, I didn't realize it until I got here. And I was telling some of you guys that led us last night just how much my heart just needed to sing to Jesus. I, I, that is just a balm of Gilead. That, that is so restorative to just sing songs to my Savior. So I've just been so filled up getting to sing to Jesus with you guys. So uh, I'm sure you're going to be thanking them. Before, but can we, can we hear for the worship team? You guys are... Yeah. Oh, man. It genuinely feels like cheating to get to come up and preach after rousing worship like that. That was just so precious. Well, friends, we're going to depart from the script a little bit this morning. And by a little bit, I mean we're not going to talk about anything that you have in your um, handout there. And we're going to do that for a couple of reasons. First of all, the passage that we've been going through ends off with an admonishment and a warning. Basically, the passage sums up like this. Continue in character, or you will run the risk of falling into fruitlessness and uselessness in your walk. So the progression of character, um, it really it, it breaks down like this. Continue to ensure that your walk is fruitful and reflecting Jesus and if you do so, it's the best assurance that you can have in this life to the reality of your salvation. And he actually tells them, confirm your election in verse 11. Meaning that apart from character, we can have no earthly assurance of the reality of God's salvation in our lives. Now I think that that's a, a great message. I, I want to do this series that I just did with you guys at my church and I'll, I'll probably do that message. I've been preparing it for a long time, and I'll probably do that there. But here's where I, I just didn't feel comfortable, and the Lord just wouldn't let me sleep last night. Uh, I, I've had this long 
standing belief that it's not a visiting preacher's job to admonish someone else's church. And that passage really ends in an admonishment. Before I was a church planter, I was a youth pastor. We really had a neat youth ministry. It grew real fast, and we had a lot of kids, and it was exciting. And visiting speakers would come and intern there from the local Bible college, and they would say, like, hey, for our internship, can we come and give a message? And they always thought, like, this is the message that I'm going to bring the heat. And, you know, what's interesting is when I was a kid in Bible college, I went to a good school where they always wanted the people that went to that school to come and preach and do pulpit supply. So that's the way I would think. I would think, you know what, they're inviting me to come and speak, so I'm going to go in 45 minutes and fix all of what the pastor obviously wasn't doing the other 51 weeks of the year. So I'm going to bring the heat. And and it was crazy. A bunch of arrogant 22-year-old guys would all get together on our floor afterwards and talk about, I preached at this church, and then I brought it, and I brought it over here. And and, and we thought that was so cool, and we'd be high-fiving. And the meaner you were was like a reflection of just how much you love the truth of God's Word. Um, and, And I liked that until I was a shepherd and people started doing it to me. And, 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 then, and then I sat there thinking, you don't know my people. You have no business coming in here and rebuking them. You have no business just taking this blanket shot across the bow and just thinking that you can, can just uh, speak into the sin that they're walking. You, you don't know them, so just stop. You're really irritating me. And um, I, made a, a, I, I made it my purpose at that point that if I was going to be asked to preach anywhere, if God should ever forgive me for being so arrogant, um, that I, I would try to be an encourager. So I want to end with an encouraging note and not an admonishing note. And also, Jeremy told me that he's starting a series next week, I believe, that's going to be ten weeks in a row of just rebuking your guys' sins. <laughs> Um, he said that each of you guys that have confessed an area of character, that he will, by name, be... (laughs) So, I would love to be a fly on the wall on that, brother, but I'm just going to trust the Lord with you on that one. (laughs) So, I I don't need to, so thank you for that. You got me. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, But the other reason why I really felt the need to flip the script is I, in a more serious note, I've had several conversations with you guys through the course of the weekend where it seems that a lot of you are wrestling with a similar question. What happens if I'm living a life of character, but it doesn't seem to be working? Whatever your grid is to view what working ought to look like. What happens when I am developing character in my life, but God still seems distant from that? Or the circumstances that I'm in don't seem to fit or reflect the effort that I'm putting into making character-based decisions. And I've talked to a couple of you that have been trying to walk through a steady gospel character and integrity for years in situations, and the situations haven't gotten any better. You don't feel as if you've gotten any better, and you don't feel any stronger as a result. So what I want to close with is a word of encouragement on what happens when character just doesn't seem to work. Does that seem fair? We'll close with that. Now, before we actually get into the word, I have to make an obligatory reference to Braveheart. um, Because um, 
the people in my church told me that there's not a, a sermon that goes by that I don't reference Braveheart. Um, so just so we, I'm not giving an illustration. I, frankly, I, I don't care if the illustration's lost on you because I like Braveheart that much. But I'm just curious. How many of you have seen Braveheart? Let me get a yes. Awesome. All right. So that movie gets that movie gets me psyched up, man. That that is that is like the steel magnolias for men or uh, like oh man I, I get so fired up when I watch that this is not an exaggeration um, in case you didn't know this often when pastors use um, illustrations they exaggerate um, you know that Jesus wants the rose clip that I've shown you last night you could go on YouTube and you could actually see like a hundred different pastors giving that same illustration, but in the first person, talking like they were the one that was there. Jesus wants the rose! And so pastors make stuff up sometimes for illustrations. <laughs> Hopefully your pastor doesn't. You don't do that, do you? Okay. So <laughs> this isn't exaggeration or hyperbole, but when that movie came out, I saw it. I went and saw it the first night, and, and I loved it. All four hours of it. So I went and saw it the next day. And like three and a half hours into the movie, something just broke on the movie. So this dude comes in and he hands out everybody free tickets to come back. And I came back later on that day and I watched Braveheart again. We're talking, I invested like 12 out of 16 hours in Braveheart watching. So I I love that movie. And we're going to be looking at a real life version of Braveheart. This morning, if you want to turn your Bibles to First Kings chapter 19, um, but the real life version is actually in chapter 18. We have this rugged warrior named Elijah, and he's taking on this evil king named Ahab and all of his evil henchmen. And just to, to give you a little bit of background, Baal worship, the worship of this false god, had won the day, and it was just dominating the culture of the time. So, so. He offers them to a showdown on this place called Mount Carmel and saying, we're going to see which God is really God. We're going to have a test right now between Baal and between Yahweh. And at the end of it, we're going to know which side wins. So they have this awesome test going on where it's just Elijah and 450 prophets of Baal, and they say, let's make up these sacrifices here, and we're going to put it on the altar. And Elijah, just so that he doesn't have any gimmicks, he takes and he douses water all over his sacrifice, and he calls down fire from God, and then, boom, the thing is just consumed by Yahweh. So it's their turn. And they start yelling to their God. They start cutting themselves, performing all kinds of pagan rituals. And, and Elijah's just over there mocking them. He's like, well, maybe your God's in the bathroom. Maybe, maybe he's taking a nap. Maybe you should yell a little bit louder. And nothing happens. So Yahweh wins. And then Elijah takes his sword and consumes these 450 prophets of Baal. I mean, it is just the absolute toughest. Like, Braveheart was cool, but this was way tougher kind of story. Now, how would you feel if Braveheart ended with William Wallace instead of, you know, that great scene where freedom and you're all like, you know, trying to choke back tears because that's a a manly movie and you don't want to cry because it's so manly. Um, How how would you feel if it, instead of ending like that, it ended with him just running away from Longshanks and saying, yeah, I recant. I'll give you whatever you want. You know what, I'll, I'll even join your army. 
and we'll go and we'll wipe out the Scots. That was kind of stupid anyway. It was just kind of a pipe dream. Like It would be anticlimactic at best, and it would be devastating at worst. You would feel like, I just wasted three and a half hours to get to this. It wouldn't make sense. So on the biblical Braveheart, right when the hero was at his most triumphant moment, the time of victory, in the very next scene, we see him run away from the evil Queen Jezebel, and he's hiding in a cave in the middle of the woods. And at first, that makes you pause, because we don't expect that. But when we allow the humanity of the character to sink in, I think we can really identify with Elijah, at least I can. And I think that there's a lot to learn from this story, and it'll be a fitting end to our weekend. So I want to share with you guys four ways that we see discouragement play itself out in Elijah's life, and four ways that we see God deal with Elijah's discouragement. First, I'm going to pray. Jesus, I just ask that you would get me out of the way. Let your word do what your word does. I pray for those who are just fighting in the trenches, the Josephs here, who are making consistent decisions of character, yet continually seeing things go from bad to worse. God, I pray for that person that they would be encouraged when they leave here. And I pray for everybody else that they'd have tools in their bucket. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see our first lesson right off the bat, and it's one of the reasons that I think this is a good message to close our time with, that sometimes greatest discouragements happen right on the heels of our greatest spiritual triumphs. Look with me at chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, meaning wiping out all the prophets of Baal, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may God the gods do more to me also if I do not make your life like one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he arose and he ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. If you look at the end of chapter 18, Elijah had just defeated the false religion of his day. He had just prayed, and three and a half years of drought had ended. I mean, that's dynamic prayer life. You talk about mountaintop experience. And in the very last chapter, the last verse of it tells us, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. But as chapter 18 ends and chapter 19 begins, something happens. The, the king and queen of Israel, Jezebel and Ahab, they get, ex, they get upset over Elijah's exploits for the Lord. They had gone all in on this Baal worship thing, and they were not real happy with Elijah's destruction of their religious system. And they also weren't happy for Elijah being able to shut up the skies and make it not rain, because I'm sure in their carnal thinking it meant that this man was more powerful in Israel than the king and the queen. So in verse 2, Jezebel makes this vow to those same false gods that were just defeated. Think about the just the folly on that one. That she's going to take Elijah's life. Just to make it clear what's going on, she's saying she will not give up until she's found Elijah and she's killed him. And Elijah just can't take it anymore. Look back at verse 3. It says, then he was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. I mean, he just went away by himself. He didn't even want a servant to come with him. He just wanted to go and hide in the woods. So it says that he ran into the woods. I don't know about you, but that 
doesn't seem like the way that the situation is supposed to go. If I wasn't familiar with the story and I had just finished chapter 18 and that's where my Bible ended and you told me that this was going to happen next, I would think you'd say something like, by God's power, I just took on 450 of your mightiest prophets and slayed them with the sword. Do you really think that I'm going to be afraid of you? And then I would think that there would be like some kind of like showdown in the middle of the woods and, and he would have destroyed the remnant of Baal worship, like, like Braveheart did. But that's not what happens at all. This man, battle-forged with character, who is so mighty, only a day earlier, is now running from Jezebel and cowering in the woods. This man who looked fearless in chapter 18 is now hiding in a cave the very next day. And it leaves this sort of tension that makes you scratch your head. But in the midst of this tension, you see our frailty and our humanity. And we see our first lesson on discouragement from this text, and that's that sometimes we're most susceptible to discouragement on the heels of our greatest triumphs. I think that there's some spiritual reasons behind that, and we could get into talking about spiritual warfare, but we don't need to do that. I'm just going to give you one really practical reason. I just think in those times, we don't expect it. People are not expecting a valley when they're on the mountaintop. The prize fighter is not expecting, when he just punched his opponent and knocked him to the canvas, is not expecting to then get popped in the nose. But that's what happens. Elijah was literally on the mountaintop, and he's literally coming down from a literal mountaintop, and then wham, he gets smacked right between the eyes, and he just can't process it. His brain can't take what's going on. It's too much for him. And I want to just ask you, have you ever been there? I I, I know that I have. That's when I'm most susceptible to discouragement, where you just experience Jesus in such an intimate way, and then immediately you get whacked, and it's just too hard to process. And if you've ever been there, you can understand Elijah's discouragement. And if you're in a season like that now, I hope that as we go through this passage, you can find some hope in the ways that God deals with Elijah in this time of despair. But before we get into that, we see a second lesson from Elijah's discouragement. Look at verses 4 through 10. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough! Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my fathers, meaning the prophets that had been killed before him. And he laid down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked around, and there was a, at his head a cake baked on the hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and drank and laid down again. And the angel came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he arose and drank. And he went... In the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. I've been forging character. That's all I've been doing here, God. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've all forsaken character. They've all thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, only I, am left. I'm the guy that's still standing strong. And they're seeking my life. 
to take it away. So our second lesson is sometimes our greatest times of discouragement come because we can't understand why God would allow bad things to happen when we've been so faithful to do what God has asked of us. And that's why I really wanted to preach this message to close us. At this point, Elijah is just through. He's ready to give up, literally. In verse 4, he actually asks God to kill him. At the end of the verse, he looks back at the prophets that were martyred before him, and he says, can I just go and be like one of them? Can't that be the way that this plays out? I'm through with this. How discouraged do you have to be to get to that place? I mean, have you ever been there? Uh, Elijah at this moment is at the very pit of despair. He's at what St. John of the Cross calls the dark night of the soul. And in verse 4, we see Elijah's fundamental reason for the discouragement. He just can't believe that God would allow this to happen to him when he'd been so faithful to serve him with everything he had. I've been spending my whole life developing godly character. And you seem to be prospering everybody around me instead. So how could you do this when I've been so faithful to serve you with everything I have? Have you ever been there? I want to just be really transparent. I I have. There, There was a time about six years ago where we were recovering from a tremendous time of grief in my family. And my wife was just a broken shell of herself. She was more broken than I've ever seen her, and this woman has gone through more than I've ever seen somebody go through before. And, and that's not a joke. I mean, she, she has gone through the ringer in her life, but a few things happened that just finally put her over the edge, and she was just on the brink of a breakdown. And in the midst of that, I was wanting to prepare to plant the church, and I began to be attacked by the people who were around me who were my former supporters, attacked in ways I had never been attacked before, and it was coming from places where I never expected it. And then my health really began to deteriorate, and I began to have chronic migraines where I would throw up every day, and I found out that I had a brain tumor, and this is all happening at the exact same time. And I can still remember one day I'm driving in my car on the way to go and preach at a conference, crying my eyes out because I'm in so much pain, pulling over about every two or three miles to throw up on the side of the road because of the pain of the migraines. And I actually yelled out, God, I'm giving you everything I have and you're killing me. Enough is enough. I'm broken, okay? Are Are you happy? Is this what you wanted to get me to? I'm a shell of a person. I'm going to go home to a shell of a person. Is this what you want? Is this what I got for serving you and going all in on the service of Yahweh? I'm not proud of it. I mean, it's just the truth. And I I just want to be honest in case you're in that place to know that you're not the only one that's been there. And it's one of the reasons why I named my boy Elijah because I can identify with Elijah. We had Elijah right after coming out of that time of our life. And I see myself in this story. By God's grace, I've been able to be used by him in ways that are fun and and unique. And you come out of it and you say, that was was great, Lord. That was so obviously your grace because I know that I'm not capable of that in my own power. And then right after, you're like, you're the same God and you're letting me get kicked in the teeth. It's a depth of discouragement that that you don't know unless you've experienced it. I, I can't explain it to you, but if you've experienced it, I don't have to explain it to you because you know exactly what I'm talking about. Have you ever been there? 
And I want to point out something really quick, that when you look at verses 5 through 9, it's all about God's provision in the midst of this. But Elijah's so discouraged that he can't even see it. If you look at verse 5, he actually sends angelic messengers to him to strengthen him. And in verses 6 through 8, God is miraculously sustaining him and feeding him. And I want you to take notice of that, that in the depth of discouragement and despair, in verses like this and some other ones that you're going to hit on, you see God's hand laced throughout the story. There have been so many times where I've been so discouraged that it felt like God was completely absent, only to look back and see that God was actually there sustaining me the entire time. And those are the times that you feel like you're you're forging character and, and he's absent. And I want you guys to learn from this. We're going to hit it hard when we prepare to close. But let's move on to a third lesson from Elijah's discouragement. And that's that sometimes in the midst of discouragement, when we need to hear from God the most, is when we have the hardest time discerning His voice. Look at verses 11 through 13. And he said, Go out, this is God saying to Elijah, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold... The Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore through the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks of the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after that, a wind and an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? God tells Elijah to go out of the cave and to go and stand on the mountain. And he hears these three cataclysmic events going on. He hears a hurricane, an earthquake, and a mighty fire. And in all three, we're told that the Lord was not in any of those. What do you think that was like for Elijah? Like, do you ever just pause and put yourselves in these guys? These are real people. In case, like... Elijah was one that you were ever tempted to think is not a real person. It's like James knows that you might have struggled with that, so he graciously ends chapter 5 of his book and says, Elijah's a real person, just like you. So this is a real guy. And this guy needs to hear a word from the Lord now more than ever. And add on top of that the confusion that this guy probably never struggled to hear a word from the Lord a day in his life. But all these things that he's experiencing, we're told that he's not hearing from the Lord. If I was there, you know what I would be thinking? God, I don't care about these things that you're not in. Just give me Jesus. You know, the the earthquake, I, I don't care. I just need Jesus during this season. But I think that's the whole point. When we're battling discouragement, we look for God to show himself by some great sign so that we can know that he's still there. And we fight to live this life of integrity and struggle. And we feel like we're abandoned at times. We need to know, like, show me something that you're still there. When the reward is not commensurate with the outworking of our character, we need to know that he's still there. But verse 12 ends up telling you that he appeared in the gentle blowing, or as the ESV translates it, a low whisper. And I I think that that's the point that Elijah didn't have to do anything in order for God to be there. God was there the entire time. But sometimes when we're in the midst of discouragement, 
we forget to listen for him. We forget to go to the places where his voice used to be really clear and where we used to be able to hear. Or we begin to just grasp for straws, thinking like, God, I need to hear you in the middle of an earthquake. Like, I I need something big here. I need to hear you in a hurricane. So we walk around like this, like, God, yeah, I I think that's you, Lord. And and we're just trying to discern a voice in the middle of all of this noise and say, is that you? Because that's the way that I need to hear you. And he's saying that that wasn't it the entire time. The reality is he never stopped speaking. And I think that that's something that we need to be reminded of from time to time, especially when we're battling discouragement, which brings me to my final lesson we see on discouragement from the story of Elijah. And that's that sometimes... Discouragement leads us to believe that we're in this battle all alone. Look at verses 13 and 14 again. The end of verse 13, God says, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel, they've forsaken your covenant, they throw down your altars, they've killed your prophets with the sword, and I, only I, am left. And they seek my life too, to take it away. I love how God deals with Elijah here. Just like he did when he came to earth in the person of Jesus. He just cuts right to the heart. So in verse 13, he's basically saying, God, uh, Elijah, what's at the heart of this discouragement that you're going through? Why are you in the place that you're at right now? It's not Jezebel. Jezebel, that's not the reason. What's at the heart of this, buddy? What's going on? And by the way, that's a great question to be asking yourself if you're battling discouragement. What's at the heart of this? It's not whatever that outward circumstance is that finally puts you over the edge. What's at the heart of it? Because it's going to go deeper than the external issues that you're facing. And in verse 14, Elijah gets to the heart of it. He says, I feel alone. I'm the only one left, he says. In the midst of the discouragement, he began to feel like he was in the midst of this thing all by himself. Have you ever been there? Because, again, I know I have. Where, where you feel beaten down, but not only beaten down, in the midst of feeling beaten down, you begin to feel isolated. Like no one would understand, so I can't even bother you with my struggles. Because if I bothered you with my struggles, you wouldn't understand my struggles, and you don't want to hear my struggles anyway. And I know that that's one of the enemy's greatest tricks to keep people in the place of discouragement. You see right here, I mean, this happened 800 B.C. So let's say the enemy never thought this trick up before this. Um, He's got at least 2,800 years of practice on it if he thought that trick up right there on the spot. And he has you in that place. He has you right where he wants you. In a few moments, we're going to be looking at how... God responds to Elijah in this time. So we've seen discouragement from Elijah's perspective. Now as we close, I want to look at four lessons on discouragement from God's perspective. And the neat thing is, is all of these come right alongside of the verses where you see Elijah's discouragement. So throughout the whole time, God's working there, and we can see it even if Elijah can't. So we have four lessons to look at on God's faithfulness to Elijah. And the first is God will continue to give you what you need in the midst of discouragement. I don't know about you, but I I struggle regularly with condemnation. So if I were the guy in this story, and I have been, I would expect God to say something like, if this is the way you're going to be, if you're just going to be this chickified Nancy Pants and go and start like hiding in the woods, I'm done with you. 
if this is really who you are. But God doesn't sit there and ridicule Elijah for struggling with fear and discouragement. Do you know what he does for him instead? He bakes him a cake. <laughs> I'm being honest. If you look at verse 6 through 8, that's what he does. God, God's like, you're discouraged. Hey, I'm going to bake you a cake. And it's awesome. <laughs> God knew that Elijah couldn't handle anymore. And he knew that he would need strength for the journey ahead of him. So God strengthened him. And Elijah didn't even realize that God was sustaining him in the midst of the discouragement. Isn't that the way that it often works when you see God sustaining work in the midst of a trial? Like you just feel like I'm being pushed to a place where I can't take this anymore. I continue to go to work and I continue to make this character-based decision. I continue to move in integrity. Nobody else is and and, and it just hurts because I I feel like I'm forgotten about. I feel like I'm the one that's not being noticed and I, I can't. Take any, but then you get a chance to look back on it sometimes and you'll be able to, you're able to see the beautiful, sustaining hand of God throughout the midst of it. The second way that God deals with Elijah in the midst of the trial is he tells him, you still have work to do. Look at verses 15 through 17. He says, And the Lord said to him, Go and return on your way to the wilderness to Damascus, and when you arrive you shall anoint Hazel, the king over Syria. And then he tells him to do a bunch of other stuff. And you might think, How is this supposed to be a point of encouragement? Have any of you ever failed to the point where you've actually wrestled with in your spirit, could God really restore me and ever use me again? I know that I have. There have been times where I've failed so hard where I was just like, God, you you got the pick of the litter. You could could pick anybody. Why are you going to take this broken, screwed up, mixed up, fear-filled, doubt-filled vessel and use me again. Uh, when I first got saved, I remember a buddy calling. I can, it's like one of those memories where you could even remember like smells and, and sounds because it's so distinct. He called me up and he was like, dude, I heard you're like born again now or something. Like, no, I'm just trying to get my stuff together, bro. You know, it's not like that. You know, I'm just trying to slow down. I'm still the same dude. I remember hanging up the phone. I said, oh, man, I'm Peter. I just, I just denied Christ. I've been praying for opportunities for this. God just brought it to my door, and I just denied my Lord. I, I can identify with Peter when I read that story. I, I, I've been there. I, I remember the first time I tried to plant the church. I thought that God was calling me to plant the church in this town called Red Bank, and I just absolutely fell on my face, and it was awful, and I was so discouraged, and I was like, God, where were you in that? I thought that I heard from you, and that made it even more confusing. So it was like, all that prayer and fasting, what was that? What was it that I was hearing from you? So I moved out to Colorado because I thought God was calling me to go and plant the church in Boulder, and then that wasn't it either, so I got more confused. It was like, what's going on? Like, in each of these steps, God, I really thought that I was following you. Am I broken? Like, it, can I just not hear your voice? anymore well imagine what must have been going on through elijah's mind when he's so discouraged that he thinks that god is through with him and in the middle of him god says elijah get up and eat you've got a job to do can you imagine anything more encouraging when god tells him 
you still have a job, Elijah. And not only that, I still have confidence that you're the right guy for the job. And I'm going to provide you the strength so that you can rebound from this and move forward and be able to do that job well. And I want to encourage you, and I want to just kind of let this be the thought that I leave you guys with. If you've come here and you've just been struggling or failing in that area of character, if that list that we looked at last night, you're like, man, there's things in there and I'm really stumbling over those things. Get up and eat. you got a job to do. comes right out of this text. Think of the implications of this for a life of character. Okay? It, yeah, you screwed up. Okay, get up and eat. You've got a job to do. God is not done with you. The third lesson we have to grasp on how God dealt with Elijah is you don't have to grasp for God in the midst of a discouraging time. He's going to reveal himself to you. And for me, that's probably the biggest lesson to grasp in seeing the interaction between God and Elijah. Because so often when I'm struggling with discouragement, I want to make sure that I hear from God in the earthquake or the hurricane or some mighty way where I can drive a stake in the ground and say, this is the time that God's spoken. And it has to be because I dated in my journal. And obviously my journal can't be wrong because that thing's darn near inspired. So I know that God met with me on this date. So you go looking for God under every rock around every corner, only to grow more discouraged when he doesn't reveal himself to you in the way that you think that the God of the universe is supposed to reveal himself to you. One of the most important truths to remember when going through discouragement is God is not far from you. You are not broken. And I don't mean broken in the beautiful Christian sense of we need to be broken so that God can use a broken vessel. I mean that you're not just so broken and screwed up that he's done with you. God's not decided that I need to go and move on to somebody else because that guy, like, he's way too jacked up and I can never use somebody like him. She, you know, she's just got way too many issues and I can never use a gal. He will reveal himself to you. Dwell on the land, cultivate faithfulness, delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Trust in him. He will do it. He will make your righteousness shine forth like the sun in a noonday. Psalm 37. The reality is, much like Elijah, he might be revealing himself to you already, but you just need to be still and trust that he's actually there. Which brings me to the fourth and final lesson, and that's that you are not alone. Right after Elijah tells him how he feels about this battle, God gives him a little bit of good news. Look at verse 18. He says, You know, we'll leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed the knee to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed them. Listen, you're not alone. There's 7,000 more Elijahs out there, just like you, who are actually in step with you on this journey. And the very next paragraph, and I, I, I've studied through this passage so many times, I've, teach, I've taught through it, but this, this, was, this is fresh to me. It was beautiful, and I was sitting in my room just crying earlier today, and the very next paragraph is when Elijah meets his best friend. That's when God brings Elisha into his life. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, it's just hungry for fellowship. And he's saying, God, I'm, you want to know my problem? I'm sick of doing this by myself. That's my problem. So God says, all right, it seems like you need a friend. And he brings Elisha 
into his life. And that's, that's beautiful. The only reason that we would be alone is because we would allow discouragement to make us do what Elijah did, to isolate ourselves and to retreat into isolation. And that's why the writer of the book of Hebrews gives us two critical encouragements. Do not forsake the assembling together. You're not, you know, there's a purpose for this. And he also says in another place, let us encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today, lest any of us become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because it's easy to be hardened in a place of isolation. He knows that our hearts tend to be discouraged and he knows how frail we are. He designed us to need the encouragement of the body of Christ. You know that, it says it a couple times in the Psalms, you know my frame, you know that I am but dust. I found myself praying that. David prayed that for a reason. I said, God, you know my frame. You know that I'm dust. You pushed my frame to the limit. So you either need to take your hand off the throttle or you need to give me 2 Corinthians 12 grace that would be sufficient for the trial therein. And I find myself praying that a lot because David prayed that a lot and Paul prayed that a lot. It's a biblical prayer. So the conclusion as we close, guys, is there are 7,000 more that have not bowed the knee to Baal. If you've come here with discouragement in your heart, the body of Christ is here for you. That God has given you a special church. I'm not just saying that because I want to find an encouraging... This is a special church special church me and lee were just talking about that this morning like we're just getting to know you guys and it's just so evident you have a special church you're surrounded by those who have not bowed their knee to Baal. and if you're going to be a body that's going to get real and have meaningful relationships you have to not just be a sunday best kind of body and it starts with getting real with discouragements and if that's you and you've come here this morning, I pray that you're encouraged by the way that you've seen Jesus deal with Elijah. But I also just pray that you would make the most of this time and not leave here before grabbing a brother or sister and letting some people rally around you and love you and pray for you and just be the hands and feet and heart of Jesus for you like he intended the church to be. Jesus, thank you so much for the encouragement that we get from scriptures. And God, I just want to just again lift up those people who are just faithfully putting one step in front of another, but it seems like they're doing so absent from you rather than in concert. Show them that that's not so and encourage them through your word, by the indwelling of your spirit, through some type of sign to show them that you're there, but also through the reality of the body of Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.